If you're a fan of Borrowed, you might want to check out a podcast called The Big Shut-In from our friends at Racecar Radio. It features long-form conversations with all kinds of people, real people, here in New York and all around the country, to hear how they're coping during the coronavirus crisis. It's unscripted and intimate, and it really gives you a view into people's lives as they navigate this truly difficult time. So you can find The Big Shut-In at racecarradio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Krista. Hey, Ajawa. We're back in your feed sooner than usual because we have more Brooklyn stories to share with you. That's right. This is the second part of a two-part series featuring stories produced by Brooklynites during the library's first ever audio storytelling workshop series, Hear Me Out. Students each came into the workshop with a story to tell, and many of those stories had to do with living through the pandemic in Brooklyn, an event that is impacting all of us in different ways. We've collected these stories into that second episode. The first episode has five other incredible stories about Brooklyn, so be sure to check those out too. So without further ado, we bring you six more stories from the library's Hear Me Out program. I'm Adwa Duse. And I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. You're listening to Borrowed. Our first story starts in 1979, when Jasmine Roberts' grandmother and her nine children escaped Vietnam shortly after the Vietnam War. It's a story about how cooking saved her family once they settled in Brooklyn. In Vietnam, I knew all the basics. So when I came here, even though I didn't have money, I could open a restaurant. It was mostly by trial and error. I took inspiration from others' meals and tried to copy them at home. Then I'd feed to everyone and get feedback. I'd cook, learn from it, cook again. And if people said it wasn't good, I'd repeat the dish until it did taste good. The restaurant kept the family afloat financially. But it also served another purpose. It kept her kids busy. Her sons, my uncles, were the main employees there. Every day after school, my mother and her siblings came home to prep for the restaurant meals. That way, when Papa and the older boys opened up shop in the mornings, all the dishes would be ready to go, especially the jalu, the frequently requested Vietnamese pork sausage. Its recipe was one that Papa most closely guarded, Only family and trusted friends could help make the ham. And even then, only Papa knew the whole process. My job was to wrap it in saran wrap and wrap it in foil, tie it with rubber bands and banana leaf. Sometimes I wish like I could just go home and not have to do it, but we had to, right? I mean, we didn't have money then, so everyone come home and chip in to do their piece. The minute Friday comes, we sit there and we work all the way to 11, 12 o'clock at night. When everyone was busy and tired from preparing food, there was no time to hang around in the street after school. That's how my grandmother reined in all nine of her kids, by making them essential to the business. But Mei Hung Restaurant in Chinatown had its fair share of gangs too. This was dangerous, but for different reasons. The people there weren't there to recruit young kids, Here was the center of official gang activity, with each street and storefront carved up as the property of one gang or another. There were fights on the street, in the mall. 
嗰個人啦，俾婆婆。Someone loaned me money, and it was cheapest in Chinatown, so I opened the restaurant there. But I was very afraid of the gangs and that my sons would join them. Papa eventually expanded her restaurant chain, but after a few years, she closed them all down. Everyone was too exhausted, and besides, the restaurants had served their purpose. Papa had successfully supported her kids into adulthood. Because my sons worked at the restaurant, they didn't get into trouble or follow the other boys in the streets. I opened the restaurant for my sons and daughters, not for myself. This is what Thanksgiving sounds like in my family. With the pandemic, the gathering is smaller this year. But that doesn't mean it's any less loud. The twenty of us celebrate my cousin's birthday, watch a movie, and dig into trays of noodles, soups, and jelly desserts. But this time, Papa isn't cooking. She's tired, she says. Let everyone else cook. My uncle makes Thai noodle soup, and my cousins and I make vegan Jamaican beef patties. The verdict? Did you like it? Yeah.、Mm-hmm. That's my uncle Richard. He's a chef. He makes a face at me. But it was too dry. Mm, yeah, the inside is dry. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> I guess that means my cousins and I still have some ways to go until we satisfy everyone. It's relieving to know then that our cooking, which isn't always so great, is a choice. On cold Friday evenings, when my cousins and I pull out the flour and preheat the oven, cooking and baking doesn't come with the pressure of being our sole source of income. Mixing soupy tomatoes and sizzling onions together feels like a science experiment. It makes us feel powerful, like we have a joint responsibility to turn out something delicious. And with the European and American desserts we've added to our list of recipes, we feel like we're adding on to our family's culinary history. But mostly, as my cousin Dylan puts it, cooking kind of makes me feel like a grown-up. Thirty-seven years after Papa opened Mei Hung Restaurant, food still means community. It means another few hours that everyone chooses to settle down on the floor of Papa's small apartment and dig into a rich meal. But what's different now is that we can take the time to appreciate what food has done for this family, how it makes money, strengthens relationships, and most importantly, keeps our bellies full. That was Jasmine Roberts telling the story of her grandmother's restaurant in Chinatown. You can hear the rest of it on our website. Sharing food with family has been one of the joys of 2020, especially during a pandemic, when a lot of our favorite things about Brooklyn have changed. Our next story comes from Honeychild Coleman. She's a musician, activist, and DJ, and her story captured the way that Brooklyn has changed. She talked to three residents of Williamsburg and Bed-Stuy: Criterion Thornton, Creature, and Tara Deport. As a resident of Brooklyn who was here for the first wave of COVID-19, what message do you have for our listeners on how to prepare for 2021? I think just a daily routine that's you know that involves some exercise and some、uh, downtime and、uh, you know cleaning a little bit, just vigilance regarding everything, social distancing and mask wearing and. But yeah, I think it's important to stay active and vigilant, if, especially if you're still working. I think the biggest one that I've been thinking about is let's think long term.、Mm-hmm. It's so easy to want to give in to our 
our short-term needs and and wishes of being together, of, of feeling freedom of, you know, I'm just like everyone else. I want to run around and breathe the air <laughs> without a mask on and be around a bunch of people and dance and, and explore and have fun. But I think we really need to keep our long-term goals in mind and also keep the, the idea of we're really n not just thinking about ourselves, we're thinking about our community. For me, like, uh, I walk to the city from where I live, it's like a good four miles. So, you know, that's for me, keeps my mind sane and just like, you know, and sometimes I take the bus or take the train, I'm like, oh, I should just walk. I don't, I shouldn't be on this train. There's too many people on here. So mm -hmm. it's it's interesting, but it, 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 it the first couple months was a little wacky. You know, I think for a lot of us, we we're just kind of like, really, we got to stay in, it's nothing to do. And then, you know, you start, things start kicking in and you start figuring out things and little, you know, glimmers of light come and you start realizing, hey, this is actually a reset. This is not, it's not over. It's like, you know what? Let me focus more on what I have to do. Let me, if I have to study, let me study some stuff. Let me like work on my health. Let me, you know, let me get in tune with people I've been in tune with. Let me get in tune with myself. That was an excerpt from Honeychild Coleman's story. You can listen to the rest of it on our website. For some residents of Brooklyn, the pandemic was more than a reset. It was a time of loss. One of our colleagues, BPL Outreach Supervisor Brenda Bent-Peters, was a participant of Hear Me Out. She produced a story about a daughter's quest for justice after her father's death from COVID-19. Billy Bracewaite-Jones, a high school teacher here in Brooklyn, lost her father recently to COVID-19. Unlike others who accept the death of their loved ones as a tragic effect of the pandemic, Billy believes her father was murdered by the U.S. government. I mean, right after we went into um, lockdown mode, I think um, it was right after um, schools didn't actually, I think, stop until about March 25th, August 8th, my father was dead. So your father passed away due to COVID. Is that so correct? I'm going to just sort of go off on a little tangent here okay. because my father was killed by COVID. Um, I personally don't say that my father passed away. I say that my father was killed because my father and the 200,000 plus people who died most of them, and I'm a firm believer also that my father probably would not have died had it not been for the careless, reckless disregard of human life by this administration. Okay. So my father was killed on August 8th, excuse me, on um, April 8th. She continued to explain how everything transpired during that time. Um, you know, the day daddy was killed, declared dead. That was the day that saw the most deaths in New York City. So at that point, um, a lot of doctors and hospitals weren't really keeping people. And they were sort of like trying to treat people from home. But until, you know, we realized that he was having shortness of breath and he could not stay home, um, 
that's when we got him to the hospital. And even that story is a horrific story in itself because the um, ambulance, we called an ambulance, they came. And before they even walked into the house, the woman said to me, I'm gonna tell you right now, unless he's non-responsive, not breathing, or in critical, almost dead, we are not taking him to the hospital. The hospitals are not taking people. And they did not take him. They refused. I'm like, no, you are leaving here with my father. Let's get his doctor on the phone. And they were there for about 45 minutes to an hour with the doctor going back and forth because I was, you know, between my mom and myself, we were insisting he needs medical attention. He needs, he has to have medical attention. They refused, flat out refused, left without my father. And at that point, uh, we called a clinic at his hospital and they said, yes, you can bring him if you can get him here. I think they said at like 11.45 or something. And it must have been like about 10 or 10.30. And we called my aunt. She came over and we got my father. And that would be the last time I would see my father. So it made me angry because, you know, here we are in a country with the cutting edge technology and, you know, cutting edge uh, medical treatments and all of that. And people were treated horribly during this pandemic. People who should have been in a hospital were not in a hospital. People who needed care did not get care. My father was killed for lack of medical attention in New York City. United States of America in 2020. Let that sink in. There's more to Brenda's story, and you can hear it on our website. We'll read out the link at the end of the episode. And 2020 was not just about loss and tragedy. For many, it was a year to welcome new life. That was the case for Elizabeth Donnelly. In March of this year, I needed a pregnancy test just as the COVID-19 pandemic was becoming a real threat in New York City. With the governor's order, the world is shut down and I had to be extra careful as my husband, Stu, is a type one diabetic. We weren't leaving the house and we ordered a pregnancy test from a delivery service. When it came, I went to the bathroom. Minutes later, the stick had two lines. I was pregnant, pregnant in a pandemic. While I was dealing with the nausea of early pregnancy, Sarah Grace Sweeney, a doula in Brooklyn, was assisting pregnant women. It was a job she had been doing since her first birth in April 2019. When men ask me what I do and I say doula and they're like, I don't understand. I'm like, I'm a coach, basically. A labor coach. You kind of know how it can unfold, all of the different ways that it can unfold. And guide people through that, basically, um, walk them through the major, you know, signposts of their, whether it's induction, their cesarean, if they want an unmedicated birth, and that can include all sorts of stuff. So it can include physical support, holding people's hair back while they puke, you know, it can, squeezing their hips, massaging their feet, and it can be more of the emotional stuff or just kind of translating what has become a highly medical experience for a lot of people to a slightly less medical experience. Um, No, it's kind of the most magical thing ever. (laughs) 
But as coronavirus became the only thing in town, Sarah Grace's job changed. Because of the pandemic, hospitals made new rules about who could accompany a pregnant woman to her birth. For a moment, some New York hospitals were requiring women to give birth alone. Some would only let a woman have her partner in the room. So Sarah Grace transitioned to doing virtual births. She would just be a face on an iPhone, ready to respond when people called. It became a totally different job. You can't really advocate for someone when you're on their iPhone. Like, <laughs> it's, it's just really, really challenging. That's a big part of Sarah Grace's job, communicating with hospital staff on behalf of the mother-to-be. One client's husband called her in a difficult moment on FaceTime. The mother was ready for active labor, her body was ready to push, but the nurse had her panting, not pushing, and the doctor was nowhere to be found. Because, like, if I had been there, I just would have been like, no, listen to your body. Like, that can cause extensive pelvic floor damage. The urinary catheter was still in place. Like, and I believe it did cause issues for her postpartum um, based on what we talked about in her visits. And, like, there was just nothing I could do about it on FaceTime besides just kind of yell into the phone <laughs> and hope that the nurse heard me. Like, why is this happening? Why can't she push? <laughs> For another birth, Sarah Grace was the only support person in the room. The client's husband and son phoned in via FaceTime, and Sarah Grace set up a mount for the phone that looked like an arm that attached to the bed. She has a beautiful picture from the birth where the mother met her child for the first time. The mother is incandescent with joy holding her child. Her husband and son loom over them, stuck inside the phone. Yeah, I mean, it was emotional I think after the fact especially it was like I really shouldn't be the only one here like it should obviously be you know maybe in the midst of the labor it's like great that I'm the only person I'm I'm there versus the husband but after the fact it's like of course this shouldn't be me here doing this and taking these pictures you know she would get so much more comfort and probably joy out of it being her husband That was a story from Elizabeth Donnelly, a writer and journalist. Listen to the rest of her story on our website. For others, the pandemic brought changes in living situations. Omar Etman brings us a peek into what it's like to live in one of New York City's shelters. The COVID pandemic has left hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers out of work. Tenant advocates are anticipating a wave of evictions that will overwhelm an already overcrowded shelter system. In October, the average length of stay for families living in a New York City shelter was 500 days, or a year and four months. For the last decade, a lack of affordable housing has sent thousands of families into shelter and made it increasingly difficult to get out. A system meant to be temporary is today already semi-permanent for many, and likely to become long-term for many more. So what is shelter when it's no longer temporary? In 2017, I ran a college readiness program at the Department of Homeless Services. The program has since ended, lost to cuts intended to refocus the agency's work on getting people out of shelter as quickly as possible. The thinking was that the most generous thing a shelter can provide its residents is a quick exit. College readiness was seen as enrichment. 
important, but not essential for getting families into an apartment. I met Neraldi Munoz through the program. She was a high school senior who had recently immigrated from the Dominican Republic. She loved softball and could make a session on student loans fun for everyone. In late 2018, Neraldi's family moved out of a Brooklyn shelter into a NYCHA apartment in Manhattan. Let me tell you, we really made it. We made our goal. We have NYCHA, we have an apartment in the best area with everything. Like, people ask me, oh, where'd you live? I'm like, downtown Manhattan. They were like, damn, you're rich. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not rich, but <laughs> thank you. We made it. You just gotta fight for it. Neraldi? Her four siblings and her parents were what the Department of Homeless Services call long-term stayers, or people who lived in a shelter for two of the last four years. They lived in a single room in a Brooklyn shelter for three years. It was a, like a little room that only fits one bed. There is, was a bathroom, like so small, there can be two people in there. And then it was like the kitchen and the living room together. So we had to have two bunk beds in the living room. Almost as frustrating for her were all the rules. Inconveniences that, after years, amounted to major sources of frustration. Nobody goes in, nobody goes out. You gotta be in their apartment by this time or you're not getting in. You gotta sign in and sign now in a book. The problems Neraldi faced affect a lot of people in shelter. Cynthia English works for a watchdog group called the Coalition for the Homeless, where she sees families like Neraldi's every day. Families that end up homeless because they can't make rent, and then are further derailed by the challenges of life in shelter. The longer you stay, the more you will get shifted around and, and traumatized by the system. Cynthia knows the struggle. She was once a long-term stayer herself. Over the course of 15 years, she lived in and out of shelter, and on and off the street. She's 56 now, and has lived in a stable home for a decade. Part of getting through the really difficult challenges of being homeless is building back your self-esteem. Because I don't care who you are, nobody ends up homeless and still feels the same way about themselves. I don't call myself formerly homeless. I, I, I don't because at the end of the day, it's a specter in my personal existence. It's a very reachable state of being, no matter how well I'm doing now. I don't know if I'll ever get over it. And I had a good experience my last go around, but I don't know if I will ever get over the mindset that I am a homeless New Yorker, even though I'm not technically homeless. That story was produced by Omar Etman. There's more to his story, so be sure to listen to the rest of it on our website. And finally on Borrowed, a story from Taylor Cook. She talks about a community that she is missing during the pandemic, Ginger's Bar in Park Slope. Taylor spoke to Sheila Frain, the owner of Ginger's Bar, which is one of only 15 lesbian bars left in the United States. On the eve of its 20th anniversary, Ginger's was forced to close as New York went into lockdown. 2020 has been a complete disaster all across the board. And I mean personal, family, business, friends, people dying. Just, just sadness, nonstop. I want it to be over. 
course, you know, we put in for the PP loan and we never got that small business loan or whatever they were giving out when it first came out, you know. But anyhow, I'm sure some people benefited from it, which was good, but we didn't. <laughs> you know, until we get a vaccine and it's safe for everybody, there's no point in trying to, as we would say, beat a dead horse because this is not going to work, you know. So it was a great place and hopefully we'll be able to open it back up again. Yes, fingers crossed. Ginger's is absolutely my favorite bar. Oh, that's my favorite too. (laughs) Ginger's means a lot to me. It's where I have my birthday party every year, where I went with my girlfriend on the night we started dating, where I like to dance with my friends. Ginger's and the few other surviving lesbian bars have long been some of the only spaces where lesbians and other queer and trans people can connect, hook up, meet each other, and build community and safety without having to worry about the harassment we often face in straight bars. I just always felt a nice vibe community, and I always try to keep it. And every single week from the day I opened for 20 years, I always saged it. And I always put good energy and hope to keep everybody safe. And that's the little thing I would do, a little ritual every every few days and um it was like a community center really because we went through like 9-11 together we survived sandy we you know anytime there was a horrible crisis this is where people came to meet you know sheila and the staff at gingers keep everyone safe you know sometimes we get death threats and i just felt the need the last few years that maybe i should get a bouncer on the door weekends because of you know that whole shooting in florida and I start to feel a little unsafe with nobody on the door, you know. And, um, you know, uh, down through the years, we've never really had any trouble. We never really had, you know, any violence or... It was just always, always a nice feeling. As lesbian bars rapidly close, circuit parties and one-off lesbian nightlife events have sprung up in their place. But these sweaty late-night dance parties with their cover charges and young crowds can't replace the stability of having a permanent space, a place to sit and talk and meet people of all ages and build community. I guess it's from where I grew up and where I came from. You go to the pub in Ireland and you could have like Joe Soap sitting over in the corner who's like 90 and then we could be all dancing here. So young people mix with old people. Like I could go out with my mother to the pub and have a great time because we'll be young and old people, you know. So I like to provide that kind of space as well. I think that's important that we don't forget about our old people. And now that I'm getting old too, Jesus, not to say that I'm old, but, you know, I'm not in my 20s or 30s anymore, and that's for sure. (laughs) Us older people, we did pave the path for the young people, you know what I mean? And that's why I still look at the generations before me, you know, some, some of the older generations that are like, wow, they really made a difference for us. So, you know, I think it's important not to let that go. This is what we lose when we lose lesbian bars a dedicated space for queer women and trans people. A place where we are always welcome. A place that is ours. The queer community is resilient. With or without our own bars, we will always carve out spaces for ourselves to be together and be safe and to celebrate. But I'm eagerly looking forward to the day I can return to Ginger's, cue up a song on the jukebox, play a game of pool, and sip a beer in the backyard with friends and strangers. 
you have a go-to song on the jukebox? Another song. I'm coming out. I want the world to know. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. It's I such know. a gay song. I mean, I've always noticed anytime that I ever come on, whether they're young or old, and they're, people were always tapping or clapping or singing or something, you know. <laughs> You can listen to the rest of these incredible stories on our website, bklynlibrary.org slash community content, or search for Hear Me Out on SoundCloud. Hear Me Out was part of BKLYN Incubator, co-produced by Virginia Marshall and Union Docs, and was generously supported with funding from the Charles H. Revson Foundation and Robin Kay and J. Lewis Family Inc. The lead instructor and curriculum designer of the library's Hear Me Out program was Stephanie Fu. Guest instructors included Dan Rosado, Marissa Schneiderman, Sasha Mathias, Anne Hepperman, and Brendan Baker. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me, Adro Aduce, and Krissa Corbett-Cavores. You can find a transcript of this episode at our website, bklynlibrary.org slash podcasts. Borrowed is produced by Virginia Marshall and is written by Virginia Marshall and Adjua Aduse with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Meryl Friedman, and Robin Lester Kenton. Our music composer is Billy Libby. Borrowed will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep telling each other stories. <laughs> <laughs>